Hey team, it's Matt Rinkine here. And you might have heard, my brand new book releases on Amazon on March 8th. It's been a labor of love that I think can really help you navigate some of the challenges you're experiencing in your own life. I go over toxic positivity and how to think you're in it for everyone else. In reality, you're in it for yourself. And I express that through this entire book and help learn from our own mistakes and how to turn the lens on ourselves and ask good questions. So go to Amazon on March 8th and you can get the Kindle version for only 99 cents. Just search for the book title, The Eternal Optimist. It's never too late. And you can download it directly to your device. That's it for me. Let's get into today's episode. Welcome to Eternal Optimist Podcast. I'm Matt Drinkon, your host. And team, I don't know if you've known this, there have been times in my life when I've actually been down on myself for things that went wrong, for when I didn't achieve the goal that I wanted to, for when I was maybe insulted by someone and it kind of ate away my self-esteem. There have been times when I've really struggled and been really challenged to get back up and make it happen. And that's what this podcast is all about. It's providing challenging stories that show that successful people have undergone immense challenges and that they have gotten back up and they have done it. And you know what? Just because someone else has done it, you can do it too. You know, I've done it. The people on the show have done it. And every time that a challenge faces us, we have a choice to make. What are we going to do next? Are we going to be victimized by it and let things happen to us? Or are we going to change that narrative and make it happen in some way? Take action in some way. And that's what the show is all about. Today, my friends, I've got a story for you that's unlike any other. Mr. Denny Hammock is our guest, and he's amazing. The day that I met Denny this couple of years ago in a golf tournament when I had tied for the lowest score in the tournament, and so had one of the people that works in Denny's companies, uh, a gentleman by the name of Tanner, amazing young man. We tied, we went to a sudden death playoff where I thought I had him licked. I dropped the ball on the practice green from 92 feet away and put it to about two feet. And I figured there's no way that he's going to be able to make this in two. So I got this thing in the bag. Well, Tanner walks up there and knocks it in from 92 feet and wins the playoff. And there is where I met Denny Hammock right there. And we've been friends ever since. He's been someone that I have learned an immense amount from. He's someone who, as of the time of this recording in late June 2022, his daughter is getting married soon, so congratulations on that. He's a strong family man, a man of faith, a man who has had a career that spanned nearly four decades where he has served hundreds and thousands of employees and clients. His influence and impact is met all over the United States of America. He's someone that's an amazing human. He's someone that has very entertaining stories. You're gonna love him the second he starts to speak. I ask him one question and before you know it, he just takes off and takes us on this joy ride of the very first time that he dealt with major rejection. And it was, a, it was quite a story. He talks about how success can be measured in different phases and stages in our career. And I think you're gonna be surprised when he shares his top two tips for living a successful, happy life with advice for the listeners. So team, without any further ado, I'm gonna introduce you to my dear friend and a great guest, Mr. Denny Hammock. Hello, and welcome to the Eternal Optimist Podcast. 
the show for optimists by optimists. This is the show for people who see the good in the world and want to make a positive difference in the lives of their families and communities. Each week, you'll hear inspiring stories that will get you thinking bigger and playing more offense in life. With your host and high-performance coach, Matt Drinkon. I'd love to kick things off here, Denny. Let's kick off with a couple things about you. I mean, people can can hear and see about you online. You're, I would say you're you're pretty famous, at least this area of the country and what you do. You're you're well known in what you do professionally. I'd love to ask what might be three things about you that people might not easily find if they were to look you up professionally. There's three things about you, Denny. Wow. So once I graduated from University of Virginia, and back in the day, very little or no computers, but I was extremely aggressive with the resume and every company that was coming onto campus or providing a box to drop your resume off. Matt, I probably dropped off 300 resumes in a six-week period there at the beginning of the second semester. Yeah, I'm going to get a job. I'm going to find a job. And and looking back on it, not a mistake. I I just think it was lack of experience. I had no one really pushing me to follow my passion at that point, which was sort of strange. It's weird looking back on that because now, yeah, with my kids, I, I laugh. And some of the things that they're now doing or they're wanting to attempt or they do attempt, and I hang up the phone and I look at my wife and I go, well... The whole lesson that I've been preaching to them you know, since early, early childhood of follow your heart and follow your passion just came back and bit us in the rear end. And I laugh because it, abs- it actually did not. But you wouldn't envision our kids trying something. You know, you're saying, hey, follow your heart. But then I think maybe deep down you're going, OK, get that job, get the company car, get the benefits, you know, do what I did. And I think it's just such a different world. These days. And so you you started off going, hey, what would be something someone didn't know? I think out of those 300 resumes that I dropped off, it ended up eventually going through the whole process of second interviews, third interviews, that one job offer. And and even in school, in business school, we, we met a lot with teams. We had assignments on teams. I was always the one communicating. I was always the one presenting. I was always the one in front of the audience. And so I felt like my skill as a communicator, someone that's going to be interviewing a lot, I should be ahead of the game. And I just kept getting no's and no's and no's. And for the most part, yep, I started getting a bunch of no's and and failures in college, which were good for me, but I still wasn't used to it. I I wasn't expecting it. I'm a very, very optimistic person from the get-go. And I think I just got that from a good blend of my mom and my dad. But boy, I got beat down during the, the second semester. The one offer I had was a good offer. It was Gallo Wine. And Mr. Hammock, we want to move you from Martinsville, Virginia and Charlottesville, Virginia. So good old Southwest Central Virginia towns. And we'd like to move you to L.A. And we'd like for you to be a wine salesperson for Gallo. Well, back in the day, the drinking age was 18. I really did not. My dad was a principal 
my almost the whole way through my middle school, high school. And I just, boy, I followed the rules. I was one of those kids that did not break a rule. I wasn't going to touch a drink of alcohol until I turned 18. And then that was, that was the case. But, you know, I get to school and, and now I can drink beer and never had a glass of wine. So here was this sort of good old, you know, Southwest Virginia boy doesn't like wine. We'll drink a Budweiser beer and I'm going to be flying out to LA and sell wine. And that's my first job out of school. And, and I turned it down for that reason and a couple of other reasons. But yeah, that would be something. I, boy, this sounds a little, boy, more than optimistic, probably a little braggadocious, but I would have thought, and I did, I did back. In, oh, I'm going to have five or six job offers. I'm going to be able to pick and choose what I want to do. And that was that was one time where I just sort of got knocked on my fanny and, hey, you got an option and you're blessed. You, you got a good job. It pays well. And what a cool experience. Go to L.A. But but in my mind or in my heart, ugh, it was just one. And it's really not something I want to do. And wow, you know, where did I go wrong? What did I not do in interviews? What do I need to improve on? So that was a that was a, a biggie for me and something that people probably don't know a whole lot about, even even my good friends. Most people know that I did start out. I, I got a last minute job offer from First Union National Bank. The only reason, the only reason is that a really good friend of mine who was also a walk-on football player, he had a much better career than I did. He took a job with a bank in Atlanta, turned down First Union. When he turned down First Union, they did the right thing. Well, do you know anybody else? And he goes, I got a buddy. <laughs> he, he might be interested in coming to Charlotte. That's how I got the job and how I got to Charlotte. And you know, it's interesting. I'd driven through Charlotte before, had never stopped in Charlotte, had driven through with my family on the way to Florida to our aunt's beach house. We live in Martinsville. It's two and a half hour drive to Charlotte. And you think big city and never came to mind to come to Charlotte. You know, we were going to Greensboro and Roanoke and thought those were the two hippest, <laughs> big modern metropolitan cities for us. And I got to Charlotte and had a very, very illustrious one-year banking career. It just, oh. <laughs> it was, it was not a good fit. I, I, I did not like it. I wasn't happy. It, it wasn't me. Uh, we were in the consumer associate training program. Now all my buddies, there were a lot of buddies from Virginia that came. They were in more of the the credit analysis and the commercial credit. And you almost knew, Matt, right off the bat, hmm, we're going to take our lesser qualified candidates and they're going to be the assistant branch managers. We're going to take the smarter group and we're going to push them into our commercial credit business. And one little humorous side story, when I knew I really wasn't in the right spot, is brought down my two suits that I owned. And about the third day, I threw on my short sleeve yellow dress shirt, put my tie on, suit on, went in. It's a little hot in the training room. I take my jacket off. Thankfully, one other guy in the class also had a short sleeve dress shirt. It didn't take the bank but about 30 minutes to go ahead and stop the training class and talk about the proper professional attire that you wore as a banker at First Union. 
So I headed out to, I guess it was Joseph A. Banks or some men's discount clothing store and bought a couple of long sleeve dress shirts and I was off and running. So I guess the third one, if I'm giving you three, Matt, you can already tell that that fashion is not a strong suit of mine. Okay. Fashion is not a strong suit. Is there a specific a personal example of that? Like you showed up wearing a Jimmy Buffett shirt to somewhere where everyone else is dressed this way. Anything around your fashion oh, faux pas? Matt, I don't know if you want to go there with this podcast, but I'm a freshman at Virginia. I have the hots for my now wife. She does not have the same okay. feelings for me. But she agreed to go out on a date the last week of our freshman year. <laughs> okay. Kathy is about 5'9 or 5'10. I'm six feet tall. I was worried that she was taller than I was. So I go into the closet and I'm looking around and I put on my polyester burgundy pants with this matching belt and a little sweater vest shirt, gray burgundy that matches the pants. And what was known at the time as Leroy Brown stack dress shoes. So I was wearing stacks. I took the three-fourths of a mile walk from the new dorms where I was to the old dorms where she was. At that moment when I got into the courtyard, one of her really cute hallmates comes running out. Her name is Lloyd and said, Denny, you are just way overdressed and Kathy is not ready yet. Why don't I take you back up to your dorm room and you can get dressed again in a more casual outfit because that's what Kathy's wearing. And by that time, Kathy will be ready. She walks me up to my dorm room, opens the closet, picks out jeans, short sleeve Azad shirt, tennis shoes, and says, put that on. I put that on. I walk back down. Wow. Surprisingly, Kathy is now ready. And we go out on our first date. I chased her for another three years and we didn't seriously start dating until our senior year. But when we seriously started dating, she told me there were 25 girls looking out the window at me walking through the courtyard in this ridiculous outfit with my stack dress shoes. And Kathy said, I'm not going out with him looking like that. So Lloyd took the, took the lead, ran out, cut me off, sent me back, redressed me, and the rest is history. Wow. Wow. <laughs> that is such a, a wide range of stories to get started. And thank you for gifting us, especially the stacks part. I'm trying to imagine that. <laughs> Kathy, Kathy <laughs> said she has given plenty of advice to women who are dating men and they're starting to become serious as a couple, but they don't like the way they dress. And she always tells them there are not a lot of things you can change about a man, but you can change the way he dresses. Don't, don't know if that's true or not. Don't know how deep that is, but a little bit of advice. Well, you're hitting me home here because I've also been given a lot of fashion advice from my wife for the very first time. We went on our first date. We were here in downtown Charlotte. This is at or around, you know, we're, it's around May 2012. And we're, we're going out to, I think it was called the Fox and the Hound, maybe. You know, just a little, little, little downtown, little bar down there to watch watch the game. And I show up wearing this shirt that it was some type of Knights of the Round Table. It had some uh, some shining knight type of attire. It had these things. I think they're called grommets or some kind of little buttons that stick out all over it. And my fashion sense was probably backwards. And I can't believe I'm saying this out loud right now, but it's okay. You you shared your stacks. This this is the, the 2012 version of that. She would tell me later that the only reason that she continued to date 
was because in her mind, and I'll, I'll quote her, she's definitely going to get me for this one. You were just really tall and good looking. So I let you have that one. But after that, she never let me wear those things again. In fact, we were then dating shortly thereafter. Like she was my, my one and only, and it has been ever since. And I would say that at that time, she cleared out all of those shirts from my closet. Like literally within a month of that date, all of them were gone. And so she's definitely had a hand in everything I wear now to this day still. So I want to go back for a moment to the first thing you shared, because I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. And I'd love to unpack it a little bit. You know, you can look at it from a few angles when you gave 300 resumes and you got one job offer. Uh, and you can look at that from a couple angles. One of those, if you're a mathematician, might be that with every 300 resumes, you get a job offer. So it's just a matter of time. Put out 300 resumes, you get a job offer. Yeah, it's all about the numbers. And for any sales professional listening, then you might even be getting a masterclass right now at the very beginning of a career of someone who has a very illustrious career in sales and in business. Started with 300 potential opportunities and only got one, one accepted. Right, so that's one way. Another way to look at it might be if you're if you're listening when Denny shared that when he concluded the interviews and he'd only gotten one job offer, he went back and asked himself, "What do I need to improve on?" You know, and rather than being the victim mentality, he went back and asked, "How can I get better at this?" You know, and that's another attitude of of someone who takes uh, and plays an offense rather than you know sitting back and letting things happen. So those are a couple thoughts that that came to mind, uh, and I wanted to appreciate you for those. I also wanted to appreciate you, Denny, for story number two, <laughs> where you uh, illustriously lasted uh, one year in the banking industry. And then when you were in training, you had your very stylish short sleeve dress shirt <laughs> under your suit top. That was amazing. Thank you for that. These, these are, this is just setting up the fashion faux pas that, that Denny was, was used to. He was a leader and is a leader of a, a company that it's, it's not a fashion company, ladies and gentlemen. He is not the, uh, the chief creative officer of fashion. He does something far, far different than that. Um, but we have a lot of creative design. I don't, I don't do it, but we do have good creative design. Yes, absolutely. And I'd love to later in the show, you know, talk about your creative design, talk about your company that I've love and I've had the privilege of, of knowing you professionally for some time. I'd love to start in the beginning, Denny, and, and paint a picture for our listeners of, of the challenges first, because on the outside, everything you've said so far, you've had a really cool attitude about. You've had challenges here and there, and you've kind of poked fun at yourself, and you're doing it all so cool and casually. And I'm, I'm imagining at the time that these things are happening, it's probably not as easy as it sounds right now. I'd love to unpack some of the challenges you may have seen in your life and you're, you're welcome to start anywhere you'd like in, in childhood or professionally or right now in your life, Denny. So please take a moment and think what might be a, a challenge that has taught you a lesson or that's impacted uh, your life. Yeah, Matt, when you were talking about or rehashing the, the three memories, there's one thing that hit me. And, I, and I've thought about this for a while. I think a lot of times we are so hungry for success. And, and I think in different stages of our life, we are measuring success in different ways. I mean, I wish that we were all so mature and all so well-grounded and, and well-directed that, that success was that same measuring stick our entire lives. I just don't think that's possible. I don't think that's, that's realistic. And so I think we get caught up in trying to win like everybody else around us is trying to win. 
<laughs> and they're probably in the same boat, but you just get caught up in that. And so, you know, looking back at the 300 resumes, I guarantee you, I guarantee you, I did not give a lot of thought about any of those specific positions that they were interviewing for. And I was just an undergraduate commerce school. I was looking at, for, you know, marketing, finance, human resources, whatever came down that. And I was just, boom, just throwing. And, and did I look at where did I want to go from a ge geography standpoint? Did I look deeply into, Denny, what do you do well? Or what do you like to do? Or or what? who are the type of people you'd like to be around? Or did I close my eyes and, and think, okay, in five to 10 years, if I go here, what what is what is this going to be like? What what are the other options? And and I don't think I did that. And so I, I think it's interesting that the people that and I had a college roommate, several we, we for three or four years, there were a bunch of us that lived together. There was one out of all of us. Probably he was on the unrealistic side, incredibly driven, incredibly focused, knew exactly what he wanted to do. I mean, from. From the time he got on campus, you knew what Mike was going to do, and, and Mike told you what he was going to do, and and he, that's what he did. That's what he ended up, up doing, and 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 he knew that. And I think that's that's a rare blessing from a a business career standpoint, or it doesn't have to be business, but from a career standpoint, I, I did not have that, and I don't know. Wait, I wonder if it was because my dad was in education and a coach and. He was just doing something that he loved to do, and and he did that right from the get go. When he when he got out of school, he went back to graduate school very quickly, and ended up teaching and coaching, and did that for his entire life. And and so he did not really have that experience of chasing a few other careers and finding out well what do I really like or what did I, what do I not like. What was awesome is that he landed right there, right off the bat, and he knew that's what he wanted to do. And and I think that's, if you can, boy, if you're a parent and you can advise that in a good way with your children, I think that's awesome. If you are 25, 26, 27, and you're still struggling to find, you know, what am I really good at? What am I passionate about? What it's a good exercise to step back. I mean, maybe even when you're 35 or 40, why? You know, you've heard of this book before. It's called Halftime. And it's written by a guy named Buford. And, and in it, it, it talks about living your first half of life for success and your second half of your life for significance. Well, what if you live both halves for both success and significance? And I get where he's going, and it's a great book, and it had some great exercises. It actually has meant a lot to me by reading that book and following some of the the guidelines or the tips that were were put in there. But boy, how about those people that right off the bat land in a spot where they are successful, significant, and passionate about doing it, and I think that's that's the goal. I think a lot of times we are striving so much to get the highest earning job right out of school or 
the back in the day, you know, the nicest company car or the old dad adage, well, do they have good benefits? <laughs> and, you know, you're, you're, you're 21, 22. What do you mean benefits? And, and now we understand that. But I think this generation now is much better. And, I, and I've talked about this with many of my friends. If you had left school and graduated, and decided I'm going to go two years and I'm going to hike the Appalachian Trail. I'm going to be a ski instructor and I'm going to do a six month trip over in Europe. And I'm going to do it all on the money that I make as a ski instructor and waiting tables. And back in the mid eighties, you would come back to Charlotte. So let's make it, let's make it really specific location wise. You come back to Charlotte, you go into a bank and you're interviewing for a job. My hunch is you would not get that job. My hunch is that most people interviewing you would go, well, wait a minute, we've got a 22, 23-year-old that didn't just free frolic around for two years and is really driven, ready to go, and we're really not sure what you want to do because of the last two years of your experience. I do think now that we are much broader-minded that we are more open-minded. And in some ways it may have flipped a little bit, you know, so you come in and let's say I'm the guy that just got out of school and I'm wanting that job and I'm right there for the interview and I'm ready to go. And I'm competing against someone that just did what I said, you know, traveled the world and ski bomb and hike the Appalachian trail. That person there has got a whole lot more interesting stories and a whole lot more they interesting yeah. experiences than, than me coming yeah, And life school. experience. Yeah. Yep. And so I, I joke sometimes with my kids, especially my son, someone this morning, I was working out and they asked where Cole was and I said, well, he's in Switzerland. And they're like, oh my gosh, if I could just stick a GPS chip behind his ear and follow that kid around, it would be an amazing experience. And there are times when I get a little upset that, hey, he needs to settle down. And I mean, he's got a good job. He, he makes good money. But, but his work schedule, his work habit, not saying it's good nor bad, it's just different. And the way that he goes about yes. accomplishing what he wants to accomplish allows him to do so many more things than I was ever able to do at that age. And, and I think now, boy, that, that's really cool. Now, you know, 20 years ago, I would have not, I would have thought, boy, you know, what's what's Cole doing? And so I do think that a lot of us, again, either older or younger, need to take a step back and make sure that there are experiences there above and beyond education that are allowing you to find your passion or allow, allowing you to find your niche, allowing you to find what you are going to be most effective doing because that's when you're going to be the happiest and more than likely that's where you're going to be mm -hmm. most successful. Well, you started off the, the challenge of being so hungry for success and, and measuring success with different measuring sticks at different ages and phases in your life and how some people may they may luck out. They may be super focused and clear the day they walk into college or the day they apply for their first job, they know what they want to do for a career. And I think what you're saying is that you didn't exactly know at that stage. And I'm wondering when, if, I mean, if you did find that, I think you did because you 
you lead a, an awesome organization, but I wonder when did you figure that out or when did you start to realize that you're on the right path? Great question. Probably, Matt, not until I was. I'm going to do this with my daughter's age. See, Carly was born in 93. She was probably 13. So that would be 2006, right? And, okay. And that would have been boy, 18 years ago. So probably 18 years ago, 42 years of age. Okay. At 42, you feel that you came to some conclusions and the, piece, the pieces of the puzzle fit together. And man, I'm in the right spot. This is, this is my passion. Were you there for a while at the job or the vocation? And then you realized it, that I'm, I'm here. I'm in the right place. I love this. Or what led up to that particular realization in your mind in 2006-ish that this is the right spot? Pro well, yeah, I'll have to back up a little bit to answer that question. But, but okay. I will tell you, it was more of, I realized at that time how blessed I was to be in the position that I'm in. And I'm really doing the things that I wanted to do. I'm just doing it in a different environment. So, so I'll back up for a minute. I told you my dad was a principal coach. I was the little bitty manager that followed my dad around everywhere. So, you know, from three years old, I'm sitting on the bench helping do laundry. I'm out there on the practice fields. I loved it. Just sort of probably came out of the womb, loving, loving, loving sports. I was a good athlete, not a great athlete. I was one that worked incredibly hard. And, and again, trying to get bigger, faster, stronger, better. In school, I was a kid smart enough that I was going to work my rear end off. I did more homework probably than any other kid in my high school class. One, I was scared that I was going to disappoint my, my dad as the principal, and I didn't want teachers showing any favoritism. So I would go, okay, if 90 is an A, I'm going to memorize enough to get the 90. If you would have given me that test two days later, I'd have had a 75. That, that's the way I learned. I was a terrible reader. I, I did not comprehend reading well. I was good at math. My SAT score, very, very average. I got into Virginia and they sent me a letter saying, hey, you're in, but can you take your SAT one more time? Which I guess was we're a little embarrassed that you're getting in with your SAT score. It dropped 40 points. Oh, wow. They sent back another letter and said, would you take it one more time? I'm like, oh, my gosh. I took it again. It dropped another 20. Stop. <laughs> and then I get the classic letter. I wish I'd kept all of these. I would have framed them. I get all in one frame, you know, boom, boom, boom. The classic letter was, please don't take any more. Come on to school. <laughs> so that was me. I was a hard right. worker, but from an academic standpoint, I really didn't learn, comprehend it the way that I should have. So college, the first two years, really hard for me. Athletics. Well, I don't know what you mean when you say by should have, because you're really good with people. You've always been good with people and naturally intuitive. So you had something. It Maybe it wasn't initially the, the book smart SAT type learning, but you did have something. I want to give you that. You're, you're being very humble. I'm going to give you that, that you always had some type of hard work and go with people. Appreciate and, that. And I, I, will, I will agree with that. I think that that is one of my gifts and I've had that for, for quite some time. But I, I think when I got to college, 
I saw all these other people, especially, boy, I don't know if I'm being pretentious here or not, but especially at a school like UVA, where there were a ton of driven, academic-oriented kids who were coming from a lot of really well-respected high schools, private high schools. Dads were in high finance or different situations than my dad was in, you know? And and so I was watching all this and I got caught up a little bit, especially going into the undergraduate business school of, well, the reason you're going to this undergraduate business school is you need to get a degree that's going to make you a lot of money in business. And, and, and you know what's funny, Matt? I grew up never with a want at all. I, I realized that there were a lot of people in our town that were a lot more well-off from a financial standpoint, but we had a fine house. We we had two cars. We, I mean, my dad was very, very conservative. We weren't going out and eating a lot. We weren't doing this or that, but zero want whatsoever. But I think, again, I got into a different environment surrounded by different people. And, you know, oh, you got to get into the comm school. You got to get into the comm school. Okay, well, guess what? I'll memorize enough to get the score that I need to get to get, and I was barely accepted in the comm school. I had to go to summer school to retake an accounting class to get into the comm school, but I got in. Now, my wife says, well, you were on the football team. And I'm like, yeah, but I was not, I was not very good on the football team. So if that was the reason, boy, they were really, really nice to people on the team. And so I, I, I get out and again, 300 resumes, right? Chasing, what was Denny chasing? And chasing a a quote unquote big business job. And so I get to the bank and I quickly realize this isn't me. I, you know what? If I'd stayed at the bank, probably would have found a good spot. It was right at the time that the banks were decentralizing. They were providing more services. They were doing more things. It was becoming more of a creative institution to work for. But I was, I, I just didn't want to, didn't want to do it. What wasn't me? And so took a sales job really because the gentleman came in and was, getting traveler's checks. He was young. He bought the business from his dad. He went to UVA. We started talking. Wow, I could go and sell color-coded filing systems and shelving and be on full commission. And I thought, you know what? That's probably not what I'm going to do for long, but this has an uncapped potential from an income standpoint, and I'm, I'm going to give it a shot. So about three years later, something most people don't know, three or four years later. So I'm 27 and doing, doing okay. This is actually a pretty- you're not, you're not taking advantage of the uncapped commission yet at this moment. You're just doing okay. This is interesting. So I need to think back from the year. So 84, I started the bank. 85, I started Patterson Business Systems as a full-time sales rep. I was making 24,000 at the bank in 84. I took a hit and took a draw of 20000 to take the sales job. No benefits, had benefits at the bank. That was a tough call back to mom and dad. <laughs> hey, that, you know, that little push traditional, oh, Denny's a banker. He's good for the rest of his life. No, nah, I'm going to go sell folders and shelving. Oh, by the way, it's less money. It's also full commission and there's no benefits. It's a pretty big, pretty big phone call. Ooh, how was that conversation? Because I've, I've had that conversation. Yeah, so, so in, in, in the next story that follows it was another conversation. And I think I'll give you the response to my mom and dad. And it was awesome. And I hope that I've been like that at, at, as a father as well. So 
he's like, okay, I get it. And, you know, go for it and work hard and you'll do well. And, but I could tell in his voice, hmm, not, not sure about this. So I'm now 24. So I worked three years and I'm at a Super Bowl party and a friend of mine goes, if you had to do it all over again, what would you do? And there's about five guys sitting on the couch, sort of watching the Super Bowl. The ladies are in the kitchen watching the Super Bowl by themselves. And we're having this conversation. And one of the guys looked at me and said, you know, a lot of people that were in collegiate sports. Wow. Did you ever think about being a sports agent? And it was the very first time someone had poked me and said, why didn't you do that? And, and the only other thing that I was always in the back of my mind is I really should be a coach. And I really should just stay here and, and coach right here in the college ranks. And, and my mom, who was a, a nurse administrative manager for a, a dental clinic, was constantly talking about, you don't want to go into coaching. It doesn't pay enough. You're not going to really get what you want. It's really hard. A lot of hours. And so I heard that, I think, enough that I decided, okay, I'm not going to do coaching. Now, looking back on it now, that may be where that passion and heart was there at the time. But we'll, we'll, we'll get into that later. So when the guy talked to me about the sports agency thing, I left the party. Monday morning, as I'm out making sales calls, I drive by South Park Mall. I go into the bookstore. And I ask a lady for any books on a sports agent. She points me to one. It was a textbook. It was written by the Practicing Law Institute, which is a company in New York City and Manhattan. And they provide ongoing curriculum for attorneys to keep different certification levels. And in the back of this PLI book was a little three-page summary of their course that they give for representation of professional athletes. And oh yeah, by the way, in June, from June 22 to June 24 in Manhattan, we will have our three-day seminar. It was $1,200. It was $600 plane flight. It was three nights in New York. And so we, I took about $2,500 worth of savings and here I am still 27, 28 years old, just had had Cole, our first child. And I still call my dad to go, hey, what do you think? And I am, I am dreading that phone call, man. I'm thinking dad's going to go, what? You're doing well now. You, you got your feet solidly on the ground with this sales job and you're making good money and you just had a child. And, and what are you doing? Yeah. He did not. Yeah, he did, exactly. He did not respond that way. He was quiet. I remember it like it was yesterday. He was quiet. He took it all in and he said, well, son, if you need to, if you need to find out about that, then you need to do it. And I think it's, it's well worth the investment. And this is a very, very conservative man who probably thought maybe in the back of his mind, eh, he should stay put and just keep succeeding and keep elevating in that company. But he did not. He did not rip that dream away from me at all. He just sort of politely, calmly, quietly, you know what? If you have that much of a passion, and I think you could hear it in my voice, he goes, go for it. It's a good investment. So long story short, I go there. 
Love it. Never been in a class that's 12 hours long, three days, boom, boom, boom. And I was writing notes for 36 straight hours. Just totally swept up with it. Came back, wrote a business plan to open up a sports agency in Charlotte. This was before the Hornets. This was before the Panthers. I had the business plan. The entire team, I had a financial advisor, an attorney that didn't negotiate contracts. I had the PR guy went and met with all of them. And the PR guy said, you know what? He goes, I'll help you if you land someone that needs PR. But I got a buddy of mine that does this in St. Louis. You need to go see him. So I called him. His name is Jim Steiner, Sports Management Group. He and another guy named Jim Turner were Lou Brock's first agent. They worked for Lou Brock's first agent in St. Louis and broke away from that agent and formed their own agency. So he said, you don't want to be in this business. It's ugly. It's hard. You work your rear end off. You need to just stay what you're doing. I'm like, okay, but I'm going to send you my business plan just to show you how serious I am. It's about a week later, my phone rings and it's him. He goes, got your business plan. I can see your heart. I can see your passion. Can you come up here next Friday? I'll spend a day with you. And maybe what you can do for me is recruit ACC football players and SEC football players in South Carolina and Georgia, but you don't have to quit your job. You do this part-time until you get your feet wet enough. So I am nervous. Oh, I get on the plane. I go. I drive to Greensboro because it's a cheaper flight out of Greensboro. I'm wearing a three-piece banker suit. I get into St. Louis. I roll in 30 minutes before this guy even comes to the office. And the secretary goes, oh, he'll be here about nine o'clock. He wants you to go sit in his office. His office looked like my bedroom in the third grade. It was a Chicago Bears golf set of golf clubs with a bag. It was a Washington Redskins helmet telephone. It was posters everywhere. And so he spends the whole day with me telling me about the sports agency world. And when we were there, Here's who called him. Jerry Rice, Roger Craig, Randall Cunningham, William Perry, Michael Dean Perry, Bubby Brister, Merrill Hodge. I mean, the guy was the real deal. He, he had 39 NFL players. So here's the whole summary of that story. I was very careful not to do this during my Patterson Business Systems sales time. At lunch, I would run over to this local typist and have her type up my cover letters and and send out brochures to the prospective college athletes or to their parents. At nighttime, I would get on the phone and smile and dial, trying to get someone to talk to me about it. But during the day, during the day, I was working selling my folders and my shelving. The first year before I did the sports agent. I did it a year and a half. I made $95,000 in full commission selling filing folders and shelving. So that was in 1989. Wow. That's pretty significant then. In, 19, in 1990, I made $48,000. The year, Ooh. The year Ooh. that I was fully vested into the sports agency dream and 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 really and I'm being honest 
only doing that during lunchtime and at night, my income dropped in half. You know why? The entire time, every single day from 8 a.m. to midnight, what was I thinking about? I was thinking about the sports agency and my business fell off a cliff. And after a year and a half with little to no success over on the agent world and realizing eh, I got to make money. My kid now is a year and a half old. I just dropped from 95000 to 48000 I went back and fully invested into the sales role. And that was a, that was a big lesson for me. I've always said that was my midlife crisis at age 28, 29. And that was, if you're going to do something well, if you're going to do something well, you need to be 100% focused on that. And, and you can easily, easily kid yourself or tease yourself into thinking, oh, I can, I can do two things well. I can, I, can, I can hold on to two primary functions or two primary sources of income and really go after it at that time. And probably for most people, that's unrealistic. And that was a that was a big positive slap in the face for me. And so I put it, I still got it. I got the sports agent box up in my attic. It's got Jerry Rice's contract in there. It's got Randall Hunt Cunningham's copy of his contract and haven't looked at it in years. We'll never throw it away, but it's just sort of a symbol. Well, I, I chased it and I'm glad I did. It taught me a lot, but I was unsuccessful, didn't make it, failed, and it led me back to, okay, this is what you were doing well. Let's continue going down this road. And then I think what happened throughout that entire time when we bought the business from the Patterson family and I start, I was the president in 94, I was 32 years old. So it was, boy, four years, three years after trying the sports agency world, we got thrown into running a business before we really knew how to run a business. And I think that just consumed me for about three or four years. It was fun. Loved it. Dropped all of my accounts. Just became a leader and a manager and, and gave up all the commission, took a set salary. And I think as we continued each year to get better and better and better, and I learned more and more and more, I think it hit me around 40 to 42 that, you know what? I am coaching. I, I'm coaching. I'm leading. I'm, I'm helping people grow. I'm helping people become successful. And, and then I think another big part, again, I told you I was blessed in that we weren't wealthy, but we, we really didn't have a financial want growing up. Also grew up in a very strong faith-based family. So we were going to First United Methodist Church every Sunday morning. When the doors open, we're there. If, if the doors open on Wednesday, we're there. We're, we're volunteering. We are doing day camps for kids. We're serving in the soup kitchen. It was just the type of family I grew up. And, and very thankful to do so. And, and so I also realized fairly early on when we bought the business and I was the, the president of the business that I had an opportunity. I had a, a microphone. I had not leverage, but I had influence in that I never was one who wanted to preach what I believed. I always wanted to act what I believed and allow those actions to be what people see of, of Denny, and hopefully that has some type of positive impact or influence on them. And, and that that's all coaching. 
just in a little different way, your life coaching, your faith coaching, if you want to call that, your your sales coaching, your business leadership coaching. And, and I think, Matt, I just, I didn't fight it. I just didn't realize that's what I was doing. I think I was so busy of just making it happen that in the back of my mind, I was always going, oh, I want to go coach. I want to go coach. I want to go coach. And finally, I just had this sort of calming presence of, wait a minute, you, that's what you've been doing. And so why not continue to do that, but but try to do it even better? So that's a long, long story for that first simple question you asked me. But now you know, uh, show me the money. I just never could really make that happen in the in the sports agent world. But I could in the file folder shelving world. <laughs> well, you, you hit on so many rich topics right there. To, to go back to the original question about when did you realize that you were following your passion or, or when did you know this is this is the right place? And it might have been 40 or 42 when you came to the realization that you are coaching, you are leading, and it's through the avenue of files, shelves, you know, professional avenue that way. It's You had to go through a lot to get to there. You tried the, the sports agency and you came to the realization that, you know, Denny splitting his focus on two different things was not the way to go. So you doubled down and came back to focusing on one thing. And over years, as you moved into the business, bought the business, immersed in the business and did everything you had to do, you finally came to the realization that I am exactly where I need to be. Coach, leader, that's the hat that I love and I'm passionate about. And if you could take us forward, you know, from, let's just say around that 2006 time period, you know, I think that that was the time period we we settled on around around that that range. If you could take us forward from there, what might be something that you've wrestled with, or it's been a challenge that you've overcome in being a leader of a large organization, Denny? Yeah, I I will. Boy, probably two things. One, I wish I'd done it a lot sooner than I did, and so this would be, boy, tip number one for young new business owners. Is, is to get a coach immediately. I, I I did not do that. I had so many people say, well, do you have a board? You know, you really need a board. You need some outside consulting. And I'm like, uh, that's just more time. That's more meetings. We, we have five owners. We're sort of our own board. I'm good without a board. Well, do you have a coach? Oh boy, that coach is $1,000 a month or $800 a month or $1,500 a month or no, I, I don't have a coach. I, our company needs to spend that money elsewhere. And, and I think for a long time, I was in the business and not on top of the business. I was, I was doing a good job rubbing elbows and boy, probably never seen a company with a more open door policy and probably to a fault. But I was just right there in the mix with everybody. And that was fun. It was good. But it took me a while to realize, okay, that's good. And you can still do that from time to time. But in order to, for you to become a, a really valuable leader and, and to help the people that you think you're really helping right now to help them even more, you need to rise above that and start looking down on the company rather than being, being in it all the time. And, and a coach helps you do that. And so I started using consultants. I started using a coach. And that, and that was, that was a lot of 
that was a lot of value there. And the second one probably goes along with being coached. And that is, especially if you haven't owned a company before, and this is your first run at it. I have a challenge and it's a, it's a good trait, but wanting to make everybody happy. And I can worry about that. I don't worry a lot, but if I'm worrying about something, it's because someone on the team is not happy. They're not doing well. They, they're not happy with me. You know, I, I want everybody to, to, to be successful, to enjoy what they're doing, to be a part of the team, all in. And I think it took me a while to realize that that's not always going to happen. And so you need to make the tough decisions. And you need to make tough decisions sooner rather than later. And when you do, for the majority of the people that you are coaching, then they are much better off. If you let it just go and go and go. And so I think we all know this and we've heard this forever that there are a lot of times when you know that there's a person on your team that's just not a good fit for your team. But you want it so badly for them. You want it so badly for the team, for them to be successful. And you also just don't want to have that awkwardness and that really tough chore, which by far and away is the hardest thing to do as a, as a leader, and that's to fire someone. That's to terminate someone. But I bet, and I don't know how many times I've had to do it, quite a bit, but every single time, I can't tell you of one that in two or three months later, because I always will keep up with the people that, that leave our company in that way, they end up in a good spot. They end up in a spot that's probably a better fit and the company is better. And I think it took me a long time to understand that those really hard, tough decisions, if you do them with the right heart, but you do them for the right reasons, then it's a win-win. The, the company that you're leading is going to win and that individual most of the time is not happy, not in the right fit, not the right seat, and they end up somewhere better than where they were. And some of that may have been selfish. Oh, you know, everybody that works here should be happy. Everybody that works here should be successful. Everybody that works here should like it. I, I'm, I'm sure I had some of that for a long time, starting at the age of 32 and wanting everybody to be happy. I had that mindset. And I think it took me quite a while to get over that hump. And I'll, I'll, I'll tell you one tough decision that we made, not about terminating someone, but making tough calls. Also having a coach and having a board. When we decided to look at our succession planning, what are we going to do when Denny decides to retire? Who are we going to sell the company to? How are we going to do this transition? And, and we started early. We started about five years before the time that I thought that I wanted to be done. And very early on, a lot of the companies that were interested in buying with us kept telling us that our commission plan was way too rich. And we sort of knew it, but we were proud of it. <laughs> and I think part of the reason we were, part of the reason we were proud of it is all of our good salespeople, they never left. And in, in, in these private equity groups and other business owners were going, well, yeah. Why, why would they leave? They're, they're, they're actually taking money that really needs to be falling to the company's bottom line to make you healthier, more profitable. 
And so I'm looking at that. I grew up as the full, full commission salesperson turned into the president. It was definitely going to be a sales oriented company. The salespeople were going to get the benefit of the doubt. We were going to have the highest commission plan in the industry, which we did. And so our feet were held to the fire on that. And David Parr, Will Patterson, Denny Hammock, the other leaders looked at, okay, are we going to be able to change this commission plan? How can we do it? We changed it. And guess what happened? The salespeople started making more money and the company started making more money. Matt, we could have done that 10 years ago, 15 years ago, but it was going to be a tough decision. I wanted everybody to be happy. So I'm just not even going to go there. And in a way, sort of told a few lies to myself that we're doing it the right way. Don't want to listen to anybody else. We're good. I know we have the highest commission plan. We want it that way. We do it that way because we're able to hold on and retain our good talent. And if I'd listened earlier, if I'd had that coach that was constantly sort of pinging me with these ideas and these thoughts, no telling what our EBITDA, what our bottom line would have been for, you know, 10 years prior. And the good sales reps, the one that we want to keep happy, we're making more money because of the way that we devised this plan that they could end up making more money, but they also could create a higher value for the company at the same time. Today's sponsor of the Eternal Optimist podcast is exercise. If you want to be really healthy, exercise every day. Team, that's about all I've got for you in terms of singing today. If you're wondering what I do for a living, it's not professional singing, although I'm considering making the jump. Whether you're considering to be a professional singer or you're just enjoying this small critique of my singing, one thing you should all consider, exercise daily. It's how you remain healthy. It's how you stay in shape. It has things that go through your body, the endorphins, the energy that is generated by exercising every day. It does the body good. So team, let's exercise every day. Get off that couch, make no excuses, exercise every day. Today's sponsor of the Eternal Optimist Podcast. Fascinating that your advice, your thinking about the things that were challenging for you is being able to accept that feedback or being able to get coaches or consultants or be able to make tough decisions. And those are things that I think a lot of leaders are, are challenged by. And for you, you learn those things. Maybe sooner would have been better, but you did learn those things and a lot of them still don't. So I'm glad that you're able to share that that wisdom with us now. Then if we can start to move towards the, let's say the exciting future, you know, for, for where you are, or for where your company is going, would love to hear your idea. Um, what might that exciting future start to look like moving forward for the company? The last two years have been the transition phase of see if I can get these years right with the pandemic, they all run together. So I believe it was 2020. Is that right? Sort of March 2020 pandemic shutdown. We had just turned down a few private equity offers. One that was a, I was told, good offer. I think I told you this story before, Matt. I was ready to go in and sign the deal. And we had looked at selling to a few employees and that didn't work. We had looked at selling to similar like companies that didn't work. And so then we put it out on the market for private equity groups and 
out of 110 that looked at it, four came back with an offer. And one was a, a reasonable offer. And I'm not one to be still very much. I, I get up early in the morning, but I work out. You know, my devotion is 10 minutes long, maybe, usually a little shorter than that. And I got up that morning and it was the morning that I was going into the lawyer's office to sign the documents for one last 30-day due diligence, but we're doing the deal. And I got ready to walk out the door and I thought, you know what? I'm going to go be quiet. I just don't feel right about the decision today. I don't really know what to do. And and it wasn't that I prayed. Maybe I did. It, it was more meditation. It was more just being still and listening. And, and that's another, boy, if I could give that advice, I don't think any of us do that enough. And, and so I was, I was really still. And, and all of a sudden it, it was like a tap on the shoulder and a question popped into my head immediately. And it was this, Denny, what's your gut going to feel like at 1245 today when you sign those papers, walk out of the attorney's office, get on the elevator and go down to your car? And the answer was clear as a bell. My gut was not going to feel good. It's going to feel twisted, not right. Then the second question was, what's your gut going to feel like if you go in there and you turn the offer down and just say, we're not going to do it? And answer again, immediate. It'll feel like a weight has just been lifted off my shoulders and I'm going to feel awesome. And so... Went back, showered, got dressed, went to the attorney office. I did not tell anybody. Our My business partners come in. The lawyer lawyer comes in. All right, let's get ready to do it. And I'm like, I got a story to tell y'all. And I told them the exact same story I just told you. That I was still this morning. Here's the answer I got. We're not going to do it. And so Will and David were you know, looking at me and, and the attorney was looking at me. And, and that was the end of 19. So we go into 2020. I call our... M&A consultant back and I go, we've looked at ESOP, but we've always thought it's complicated, it's hard, it's expensive, and you really don't get the value of it like you would on a regular open market. But let's let's look at it. So right when we shut down from the pandemic and everybody started working from home, we hired an ESOP consulting company. And in no in November 30th of that year, and we actually had a really good year. That year, November 30th of that year, we sold the company to all of the employees and did it through an ESOP. The value that we got was actually a hair more. There are also some other incentives in there based on how well the company does moving forward and, and they're killing it. They're doing a great, great job. So we announced it November of twenty. And just a few months ago, so March 22, we made the official announcement of Denny is stepping down end of year and effective immediately. David Parr, CEO, Ben Gold, president, and this new leadership team will figure out the new leadership structure, the other leadership vacancies and how they will be filled in the direction moving forward. I will still be around as chairman of the board, but took some good advice as a board member you know, nose in, fingers out. So I'll be nosy. I'll really want to know what you guys are doing, but my fingers are out. I have total confidence in the leaders that you have in, in you know, all of our staff that's going to be leading our company as well. And so I'm, I'm just super excited. They're already bringing in new solutions. 
the new commission plan is working well and for both sides. And so just, yeah, very fired up right now about others who have deserved the chance that have helped me build what we have so far. I have no doubt, Matt, in four or five years, we'll turn around and and they'll way surpass what we were able to accomplish so far. So very excited, very stoked for for multiple reasons, not just not just the confidence I have for them from a financial number standpoint, but I'm also excited for them for continuing but adding on to the culture that we've already built. And I think that's our A number one asset, without a doubt. But it always can be better. And I think it's going to be a little different and better because of that. And I'm super excited to see how how that transitions as well. Wow. Thank you, Denny. I much appreciate your stories today. And I'd love to just offer this. Is there any place that our listeners can go to find out more about you or about Patterson Pope? Any Anything that we can do to, to find out more about what you're up to? All right. So you get one good, one good last story. To find out about Patterson, to find wow. out about Patterson Pope, absolutely. PattersonPope.com. Great website. Our marketing team's super creative. Lots of great videos. Go, go look at our 50th anniversary. We just turned 50 years old and it got a hilarious three minute video about the journey. So go watch Stuffy in action. He's our company mascot. For Denny, you can go to whatsnextministry.org. And that is a ministry that David Parr, who is now the CEO of Patterson Pope, and I started 11 years ago coaching a basketball team made up of young black men from a really tough neighborhood called Greer Heights in Charlotte. And boy, in, in, in my upbringing, our, our school was always 50-50 black-white. My dad was the principal of the middle school, and that was the very first year integration occurred in Martinsville, and it was the old black high school, so it became the middle school. And that's where I would go to middle school over there on Fed Street. And I had lots of what I would consider close black friends that all played sports with me. And a lot of them were poor, but I didn't realize it. You know, at, at that age, even when you're a teenager, you just don't, you don't get it. You don't comprehend it. And, and so when I was asked to coach this basketball team out of the Gur Heights neighborhood, and we didn't win a single game, but we came really closely attached to the 11 kids on the team. And as we were leaving the party, Xavier looks up and said, hey, coach, what's next? And it it was another one of those moments where I believe that God just reached down and tapped me on the shoulder and said, okay, you wanted to start a ministry similar to this at some point in your life. Xavier knows that y'all just went 0-10. Xavier knows that y'all didn't get within 30 points of winning a single game. But he got something extra than a victory, he found a relationship and he's wanting to know where does it go from here? And so it has turned into a very cool, what I would call big brother program on mega, mega, mega steroids, where we are with 16 young men from this neighborhood that go to this one high school three to four hours a day, five days a week. We know their families super well. We have learned so, so, so much. We have formed incredible relationships. And when Xavier graduated from high school and we were 
pulling him across the stage, kicking and dragging. David and I looked at each other and said, what's next for Xavier? And we realized that it's not a program. That's sort of a, a curse word. It is a, it's a relationship. So it doesn't end. So an hour ago, I was in Xavier's living room, just stopping by, saying hi to his mom, Gloria, checking in on Xavier. Xavier's 25 years old. He's got a great job. He's in the National Guard. So we have 42 young men, and we're adding two more high schools, finding a headquarters on Monroe Road, and then here's other cool thing, and we're adding a business plan into the mix, and that is a coffee shop, breakfast, lunch, cafe, and it is a pay-as-you-can-afford cafe. So it is a very early on, interesting model concept. So we'll have immediate workers all from the What's Next ministry there. We will have them coming over at 2.30. Once the cafe closes, they'll clean up, they'll study, they'll go to practice. We'll still be forming relationships with them, but we'll be able to hopefully create just a really, really cool neighborhood relationship campus in the Oakhurst community right there on Monroe Road. So that's where you can find that's where you can find me. Wow. Well, thank you, Denny, so much. We'll link that in the show notes so our, our listeners can go and, and check you out and check uh what's next ministry.org with Denny and, and the community that you're building and leading and inspiring. So thanks so much, Denny, for investing the time today and to share with our listeners. And God bless you, my friend. Thanks so much. Have a great afternoon. Thanks for listening to the Eternal Optimist podcast. You can check the show notes for information about today's episode. And please share the show with that friend who is wanting to think bigger. We'll see you next time.